The views expressed in this program are those of the participants. I know not what course others may take. But as for me, give me liberty or give me death. Welcome everyone. It is Thursday, March the 26th, 2020. I'm Bob Metz, and this is Just Right, broadcasting around the world and online. Join us for an hour of discussion that's not right-wing. It's Just Right. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be alright. More and more of you who have contacted me since our last broadcast seem to be reflecting the sentiment of our show opener today. Last week I closed our show on the COVID-19 pandemic with an open-ended consideration to decide for yourself whether government actions regarding COVID-19 are an overreaction, an underreaction, or are just right. Well, that's the very question we'll be addressing today, right after our reminder that you can write us at feedback at justrightmedia.org Hear us on WBCQ and on Channel 292 Shortwave. Follow us on your favorite podcast platform. And of course, you can always visit us at www.justrightmedia.org where you can access all of Just Right social media links, our archived broadcasts, and of course, where you can offer your financial support to our efforts by clicking on the relevant PayPal link. Now last week, you might recall... I asked my anonymous friend who works in the emergency department of one of Ontario's hospitals to keep me posted with regard to his own observations, experience, and feedback regarding the COVID-19 coronavirus. And he did exactly that. So for brevity's sake, I shall refer to my contact as Anon, because we'll be hearing a lot more from him as our show progresses. And here's what he had to say earlier this week. Hi Bob, I just can't believe what I'm witnessing. The open-ended nature of the lockdown is ominous to me. It's the tyranny of the precautionary principle. The unintended consequences of this will be profound. I'm visiting my brother-in-law and he's losing his mind with fear. Meanwhile, I'm excited to care for infected coronavirus patients. Our risk evaluation is completely different. And this article caught my attention. A fiasco in the making. As the coronavirus pandemic takes hold, we are making decisions without reliable data. And it was written by John Ioannidis, a professor of medicine, population health, biomedical data science, and statistics at Stanford University. And this is from March 17, 2020, just to pick out some of the points he raises. The current coronavirus disease, COVID-19, has been called a -a once-in-a-century pandemic, but it may also be a -a once-in-a-century evidence fiasco. We lack reliable evidence on how many people have been infected with SARS-CoV-2 or who continue to become infected. Better information is needed to guide decisions and actions of monumental significance and to monitor their impact. Draconian countermeasures have been adopted in many countries. If the pandemic dissipates, either on its own or because of these measures, short-term extreme social distancing and lockdowns may be bearable. How long, though, should measures like these be continued if the pandemic turns across the globe unabated? How can policymakers tell if they're doing more good than harm? 
Vaccines or affordable treatments take many months or even years to develop and test properly. Given such timelines, the consequences of long-term lockdowns are entirely unknown. The data collected so far and how many people are infected and how the epidemic is evolving are utterly unreliable. This evidence fiasco creates a tremendous uncertainty about the risk of dying from COVID-19. Reported case fatality rates, like the official 3.4% rate from the World Health Organization, cause horror and are meaningless. We don't know if we're failing to capture infections by a factor of 3 or 300. We know enough now to act decisively against COVID-19. Social distancing is a good place to start. One of the bottom lines is that we don't know how long social distancing measures and lockdowns can be maintained without major consequences to the economy, society, and mental health. Unpredictable evolutions may ensue, including financial crises, unrest, civil strife, war, and a meltdown of the social fabric, end quote. Now, I got this feedback from Trevor D., and he writes, After listening to the show, I thought to myself why I have the opinion that government is overreacting to COVID-19. I have come to the conclusion that it is because I do not believe any current government, federal, provincial, or municipal, will protect my rights and not violate my rights, end quote. And I wrote back to Trevor, and this is what I told him. Hello, Trevor, your assessment is right on the money when you say that our current governments on all levels are in the business of violating, not protecting individual rights. No question. But setting aside the philosophies of the current political parties and politicians holding the reins of government, there is a distinction to be made between the action of a government temporarily restricting the liberties of some to protect the lives of others and the actions of a government permanently restricting liberty as a matter of ongoing socialist policy. Although I didn't come out to say so directly on last week's show, I generally tend to agree that the government's overreacting to the coronavirus, and I hinted at that with my nagging conclusion that there are likely thousands of more people already walking around who've contracted the virus that we simply don't know about. But, given the uncertainty involved in the actual predicted spread and threat to life, by COVID-19 as expressed by so many well-spoken and genuinely authoritative sources, I was withholding my own bias in this regard until I was in a better position to determine which of the two kinds of liberty restrictions that we're really dealing with. And with that thought in mind, here's perhaps one of the best examples of how an expert on viruses sees the picture. Viewed by about 12 million people the last time I checked, this is an audio bite taken from Joe Rogan Experience number 1439, as heard on YouTube's March 10th posting, featuring Michael Osterholm. Well, tell everybody what you do, Michael. Well, thank you. I'm, a, for lack of a better term, a medical detective. I've spent my whole career tracking infectious diseases down, trying to stop them, trying to understand where they come from so we can make sure they don't happen in the first place. But most of all, trying to respond to situations just like this. Just like this. And um, just off the bat, how serious is this? Is this something that we need to be terrified of, or is this overblown, or how, how do you stand on this? Well, first of all, you have to understand the timing of it in the sense that it's just beginning. And so in terms of what hurt, pain, suffering, death has happened so far is really just beginning. Um, this is going to unfold for months to come yet, and that's, I think, what people don't quite yet understand. 
Um, what we saw in China, uh, I'm convinced, as are many of my colleagues, as soon as they release all of these uh, social distancing, these mandated stay in homes, haven't left their home in weeks and weeks kind of thing, when they go back to work, they're on planes, trains, subways, buses, crowded spaces, manufacturing plants, even China is going to come back again. And so this really is acting like an influenza virus, something that transmits very, very easily through the air. We now have data to show that you're infectious before you even get sick. And in some cases, quite highly infectious, just breathing is all that you need to do. So from this perspective, I can understand why people would say, well, wait a minute, flu kills a lot more itself every year than this does. And I re- remind people this just was beginning. Probably the best guesstimate we have right now on what limited data we have is say this is going to be at least 10 to 15 times worse than the worst se- seasonal flu year we see. 10 to 15 times worse in terms of fatalities? Yeah, or? yeah, and, and just illness. In fact, I just I brought some numbers. We uh, conservatively estimate that this could in, uh, require 48 million hospitalizations, 96 million uh, cases actually occurring, over 480,000 deaths that can occur over the next three to seven months with this situation. So this is not one that to take lightly. And I think that's what I can understand if you say well, there's only been 10 deaths or 20 deaths or 50 deaths. Just remember, two weeks ago, we were talking about almost no cases in the United States. And now that we're testing for it and watching the spread as it's unfolding, uh, those numbers are going up astronomically. Now, you, you mentioned that there's some sort of an incubation period before people become sick, they're still contagious. What is this incubation period and how do we know about it? When we call something an incubation period, we're talking about from the time you and I got exposed, meaning I was in a room breathing the air that somebody else who was infected uh, with the virus was expelling out, I breathed it in. How long from that time period till the time period that you get sick and what is that? It's, that's what we call the incubation period. So that's when case numbers can double or triple in every so many days. In this case, it's about four days. So, And we actually have data there from people who are exposed one time or one time only. And we know when they were exposed, where they were exposed, and how soon do they get sick afterwards. So the chauffeur in the car where an individual was sick or showing symptoms, then the chauffeur gets it four days later. You know, they were there one time and one time only. And if the chauffeur does not show any symptoms, he's still contagious. He could still he could also be it. contagious too, or he. And that's one of the things that's challenging here is you and I might get exposed to somebody who is totally asymptomatic, no symptoms. That virus would appear well. That's not a very strong virus, but in fact, when it infects us, it could kill us. So we've seen cases of, of fatal disease that were exposed to people that had minor symptoms themselves. Wow. And this is what's unfolding here, and, and this is where I think it's such an important, and I said why the timing is so important, because, you know, Joel, we really have got to get information out to the public. There is so much misinformation right now, and, you know, we're going to be in this for a while. This is not going to happen overnight, and I worry. I keep telling people we're handling this like it's a corona blizzard, you know, two or three days, mm-hmm. we're back to normal. This is a coronavirus winter, and we're going to have the next three months or more, six months or more, that are going to be like this. And, you know, so far this thing has been unfolding exactly as we predicted it. We and our center put out a piece uh, on January 20th and said this is going to spread worldwide. At the time, people said, ah, no, it's just China. We put out a piece the first week of February and said this is going to pop probably the last week of February, first week of March, because what happens is it has what's called an r naught or a doubling time of, of, of these every four days. So two, two increases doubling every four days. So if you go from 2 to 4 to 8 to 16, it takes a while to build up. But when you start going from 500 to 1,000 to 2,000 to 4,000, that's what we're seeing happen in places like Italy, 
We're beginning to see it in some ways up in Seattle. It's what happened in China. And, uh, you know, when people are confronted with that, suddenly this low-risk phenomenon that everybody talks about isn't so low anymore. And that's what we need to prepare people for. Now, what can be done? Like, what what can the average person do? I see people walking around with masks on, wearing gloves. Is that nonsense? Largely, yes. Yeah. First of all, um, let's step back. The primary mechanism for transmission is just the respiratory route. It's just breathing. Um, in studies in Germany, which just have been published literally in the last 24 hours, um, they actually followed a group of people who had been exposed to somebody in an automobile manufacturing plant. And then they had nine people that, with this exposure, he said, if you have any symptoms at all, contact us. We want to follow up. And they all agreed. Well, they got infected. And so in the very first hours, just feeling bad, sore throat, they went in and sampled the throats, their their saliva, their nose for virus. They did blood. They did stool. They did urine. And they found that at that very moment, when they first got sick, they had incredibly high levels of virus, sometimes 10,000 times that we saw with SARS in their throats meaning they were infectious at that point already, and they hadn't even had symptoms yet of really any nature. They weren't coughing yet. Wow. And, and that's where we're concerned because that's the kind of transmission. It's, you know, I always have said in trying to stop influence virus transmission likes trying to stop the wind. You know, we d- we've never had anything successfully do that other than vaccine, and we don't have a vaccine here. So what's happening is that people in public spaces are getting infected. And the way you need to address that is, unfortunately, if you're older, over 55, you have some underlying health problems, which unfortunately a lot of Americans do. We have uh, obesity. Then right now you don't want to be in large public spaces. You're trying to potentially get infected. So you can take care of that part. As far as what can public health do, we're not gonna, we can talk about this. We're not going to have a vaccine anytime soon. That's happy talk. And limiting the contact, is that really going to help? It does, because it's like putting rods in a reaction. If you, if you don't have as much close contact, you can you know, not transmit as much. If I'm, if I'm sitting in a room with 100 people and we're kind of sharing air, the transmission is remarkable. Right here you know, off the coast of California, you've got your cruise ship. Cruise ships are mm-hmm. notorious for recirculating air inside the inner cabins. We've had a number of outbreaks. That's well, why they're having these outbreaks on cruise yeah. ships? and then you leave them on there. I think the, uh, the cruelest human experiment we've done in a long time with yeah. humans is leave them on these ships. Get them off right away. Should they get them off oh, right away? Oh, absolutely. what get should them they on. do with them? Well, they can put them in quarantines of some kind if they want and follow up on them, but you're guaranteed they're all going to keep getting infected day after day. say myth, I should say rumor, was that this was something from some sort of a biological weapons thing that was leaked, right? Because Wuhan is some area, a part of China, that they actually do work on biological weapons. And uh, we've heard that loud and clear. So I've had a lot of experience in this area. And so I bring that to the table and I tell you, there is no evidence whatsoever that this is a bioweapon or that it was accidentally released from the Wuhan lab. Um... Today, with the genetics we have on these viruses and how we can do testing, we can almost date them, almost like carbon testing. You know, so radiocarbon, you want to know how old a a block is or something like that. This thing clearly jumped from an animal species 
probably the third week of November to humans. And pangolins, you know, these scaly anteater-like animals, are, are a very good source because we have coronaviruses just like those in these animals. And it got into a human. So, you know, we've surely had a lot of challenges with that, but I don't believe that there's any evidence linking this to, one, an intentional release an a- or an accidental release or that it's an engineered bug. It's not. And it's just it, naturally right. occurring diseases. That's exactly it. I mean, look at where, you know, we could not have crafted a virus like this to do what it's doing. I mean, we don't have the creative imagination or the skill set. If somebody said, okay, I want to find a virus that will take out a lot of people, okay? This one, Mother Nature does it so much better than we could ever do it. And, you know, whether it was Ebola, whether it's this one or it's antibiotic resistance, any of these things. I mean, you know, you and I were talking earlier about the potential for chronic wasting disease to be a problem for humans. You know, Mother Nature is doing it pretty well on her own. Yeah, there are some pretty scary statistics being cited there by Michael Osterholm. But in broad general terms, his assessment of the situation was completely consistent with my own as I presented it last week. Even down to his identifying the pangolin as being the likely species from which this virus mutated. Now, I have no reason to question the validity of his observations and experience, but here's the thing. Even given his worst-case scenario, I don't think our governments are justified in what they've been starting to do today, and in Canada, they have definitely crossed the line. But we'll elaborate on that political dimension a little later on. Right now, I've got an exclusive for you regarding this situation. What I'm about to share with you are what I shall call dispatches from inside Ontario's hospitals, forwarded to me over the past week by my anonymous friend, Anon. And his insights are not simply confined to what he's seen in the hospitals, and I doubt you've ever heard anything like this. And I quote, Note that today we have a concern with infectious disease, hence public health has a role. But the ideological evolution of public health explains why there's no nuance towards individuals judging risk and a blanket control of everyone's behavior for an indefinite period of time. I just got word today that grocery stores are scaling down accessibility options. I asked all the old people I saw in the store yesterday why they weren't in isolation, and they all scoffed at me and accused me of paternalism. I said, do you want to die from coronavirus? You're already out out of breath pushing your shopping cart. F off, they say. I don't need your paternalism. I'm going to die soon anyway. Well, because these old-timers can't make the right choice, all of society must be shut down. But what if they don't want to or even deserve to be saved? No one will ask that question. Instead, we're currently engaged in a massive hospital capital and labor disruption of historic magnitude that will likely result in mostly a bunch of people rotting away indefinitely in those resource sinkholes of futility known as critical care beds and ventilators. This is why we have only 3,200 ICU beds in Canada, because critical care is mostly a theater by which doctors and nurses pretend to save lives but instead prolong death and promote antibiotic-resistant pathogen growth. Frankly, a lot of these people need to die. By the way, someone came through my work the other day and died from COVID-19. The media said, look, this kills people in their 50s. The truth is, he died from his underlying leukemia, and he had already been treated and sent home a few days earlier without being swabbed for COVID. People die all the time, but public health epidemiologists and the media now have another corpse to squeal about in support of everyone's infinite sacrifice. As Robert Meehan, a professor at the University of California School of Medicine in San Francisco, noted in the New England Journal of Medicine two decades ago, 
Virtually all aspects of lifestyle could be said to have an effect on the health or well-being of society, and the decision reached that personal health choices should be closely regulated. Writing 18 years later in the same journal, Faith Fitzgerald, a professor at the University of California at Davis Medical Center, observed both healthcare providers and the commonweal now have a vested interest in certain forms of behavior previously considered a person's private business if the behavior impairs a person's health. Certain failures of self-care have become, in a sense, crimes against society because society has to pay for their consequences. I hope I'm wrong and confirmation bias aside, I want to be ahead of the curve and on record for calling the policy of pan-North American indefinite universal isolation and to flatten the economy because of a virus an event of such evil magnitude that we will look back on this event with horror in the same way we look back at the outbreak of the Great War today with horror at the untold, unintended consequences. I offer to come into work on overtime in ICU because, of course, they're in perpetual shortage now that suddenly anyone who's traveled anywhere is automatically isolated and can't work. This is what is meant by health care system capacity among many government-created bottlenecks. The ICU is full of elderly people in various stages of viral-related lung failure. Some have been bedridden and kept alive for years on ventilators but don't dare make a value judgment about their quality of life. Each patient has one nurse because they have a ventilator. Today I'm making $75 an hour as a glorified babysitter, weeding and feeding a zombie-like life form. Millions and millions of dollars are being dumped into this, probably trillions around the world. This pre-existing state of our healthcare system is teetering towards collapse and universal shutdown, and it's all to preserve this charade that we healthcare workers are heroes. There is nothing heroic about this. My patient probably had COVID-19 because he just came back from Italy in December, never confirmed, but highly suspicious. He was never swabbed because he didn't fit the criteria for COVID based on policy at the time. But this goes to show the utter inaccuracy of all this data being used by epidemiologists. It's all incomplete, and it's all rife with speculation. This explains mortality rate differentials. I'm probably caring for patient zero for community transmission because that's how the other guy who got here died. It's been in the community for weeks. Sorry to be so negative, but we need to get real about what's going on here. At the end of this, when we've quote-unquote saved all these elderly people with complex comorbidities with all these ventilators, we're going to be left with an ocean of futility a sea of the living dead being kept alive by machines that will have to be sustained by an economy that no longer exists. In the end, we'll have done nothing but protracted death for an infinitesimally small number of elderly people that before this, frankly, nobody really cared about and would have been snuffed out by a respiratory illness in short order anyway. All this because we listened to those typically overdramatic Italians who shrieked, doctors might have to decide who lives and dies. Wrong. Nature decides who lives and dies. Doctors mostly prolong death in the kind of scenario we are discussing. I may be wrong, and this tsunami of patients may arrive, and I'll find myself in a war zone, as the Italians suggested. But if it does, I can't wait. Suddenly this arbitrary line on the graph that's all over social media saying healthcare system capacity will be proven to be elastic, not fixed 
in the way they insist in order to shut down society. And just to clarify, when I say that nobody cared about the elderly and infirm anyway, I mean it wasn't part of their social media virtue signaling campaign. Most of the time, elderly people insist, don't keep me alive on a machine, but if someone shows up in the emergency department in distress, it is family that often insists, do something. And the next thing you know is the patient's living on a ventilator indefinitely because now that you've quote-unquote saved their life, medical and social ethics mandate that we must now keep them alive forever. All this madness so that we never, never, ever have to raise the question, is it worth it? Is this moral? What is the price gradient we're willing to put on life? Is an obviously low quality of life with limited functional capacity worth an infinite cost? The question was raised, why China suddenly locked everyone up and imposed militaristic controls just to save a bunch of old-timers? This is a good question and a good counterpoint to my perspective. This is especially a good question when you consider China's history of callous disregard for human life in the sense of murdering tens upon tens of millions of its own people in the last 50 years because communism. I'm sure the answer is complicated, but the obvious thing is that because China does not care about individual life, after they lied and downplayed the virus and realized they had to do something, they did what Chinese communists do, lock them up. Maybe they had to do it, but that's more an indictment of Chinese corruption and disregard for human life versus a unique property of this virus, in my opinion. Governments around the world, also blindsided, are following suit. Now here's an interesting anecdote. I was running the COVID-19 clinic a couple weeks ago, and a man came in with chest pain but no fever, no cough. He was an English teacher who had just come out of lockdown in Wuhan, though he was never sick with COVID-19. He was from Ontario, but quote-unquote wanted to get checked out before going to Sweden to do another teaching gig. As I was triaging him, I asked for his health card, and he revealed that his OHIP was run out because of the time lapse out of the country. I told him he'll have to pay between $900 and $1,500 to see a doctor, possibly more if the doctor does investigations. The patient then changed his mind, felt he wasn't that sick to pay that much, and he'll just wait until he goes to Sweden so he can see a doctor paid by his pending new travel health insurance policy. I told the patient, based on your pallor and the nature of the pain, I might be concerned this is cardiac chest pain that could be life-threatening. But he declined and left, never to be seen again. Anyway, I'm sure he ended up fine, but this anecdote illustrates something interesting. How quickly people will decline health services once they have to pay. I wonder how much of this tsunami of hospital visits are people truly dying from respiratory failure, or is it people who feel distressed because they just feel really unwell and because they can get checked out for free by a doctor under a system of communist health care, which is a global phenomenon, not just Chinese. The man's pallor, symptoms, and general ill appearance, in my view, were likely secondary to being locked in an apartment by the military for a month or so. But he just flew here from the epicenter of the outbreak, wandered in and out of a hospital, and if he was an asymptomatic carrier, he just spread it all over the GTA. What the hell? He was never quarantined from the time he got off the plane, even though he was high risk. And now all of us are quarantined, even though we are low risk, well, because communism.
End quote. Now there's a dose of reality for you. What you just heard me read was sent to me in several installments over the period of the past week. Not exactly what most people want to hear, is it? And speaking of communism, here again is Trevor D. picking up on our feedback exchange before the last bumper break. Hello, Bob. You may be aware of the changes to London Transit where passengers are now required to get on and get off the bus by the rear exit door. No fare is paid. (laughs) Actually, I wasn't aware. I'll save my experience for now, but it's not COVID-19 that causes me stress and anxiety. It is the COVID-19 hysteria. When will the first positive case of COVID-19 be found in London? What chain reaction will it set off? How will I get to work if the public bus service shuts down? What if the Ontario government closes my employer's business? How will I pay my bills if the Ontario government does not permit me to work at my job? What restrictions are there regarding buying food at the grocery store? I don't own a car and the nearest grocery store is about two kilometers away. I have to walk to the grocery store and only purchase the items I can carry home. The last time I shopped for food, there was little left on some shelves. What will the Ontario government do next that will cause more trouble for me? Ontario Premier Doug Ford does not have to take public transit to work. He does not have to shop at the grocery store. I do not have such personal luxuries. I will have to try to find it, but there is a past just right show regarding how government often uses public safety as an excuse in its first step towards tyranny. It's the one featuring an audio bite that has a Klingon shuttle that is to be boarded and searched by the Federation on the pretext of a safety inspection. From politicians regarding COVID-19, I want to hear a Churchill-type speech, not a Chamberlain-type speech, if that makes any sense. We're not playing a metaphorical game of blackjack. We are playing a metaphorical game of chess against a new opponent we have not played before and know little about. In my view, that is the mindset we need to be effective in combating COVID-19. Another metaphorical way to look at it, I suppose, is how people should respond to hearing the sound of a fire alarm in the building they're in. There is a right way to react and there is a wrong way to, to react. One doesn't even need to go to a physician anymore to receive the flu shot, and at least 85 people in Canada have still died from influenza this year. Ontario does not even report the number of people hospitalized because of contracting the sometimes deadly influenza virus. People just shrug off seasonal influenza as normal, and some can't be bothered to get vaccinated against influenza each year, a virus that has, in some of its forms, killed millions of people. Now people are losing their minds over COVID-19 that will likely be forgotten in history in about two or three years' time, similar to the SARS-2003 outbreak. I see restaurants that have those green pass signs in their window regarding passing health inspections that have now been shut down, not because a swab found a deadly contagious virus inside the premises, but because Ontario Premier Doug Ford, head of a provincial government, that was elected, as I recall, without a political platform, says Ontario's in a state of emergency, and because he says so. Ontario is, quote-unquote, open for business until government decides it isn't open for business anymore. The government starts taking food off people's table. Where is the line drawn? Who gets to draw the line? Is it the number of infected? Is it the number of deaths? Is it the number of countries that have been infected? Is it an epidemic? Is it a pandemic? Is it a novel virus? Is it a deadly virus? At what point is it justified for government to start suspending and removing people's rights 
end quote. And that was from Trevor D. And those are the very questions being addressed in our upcoming audio bite. And the reason I opened today's show with Patrick Henry's famous Give Me Liberty or Give Me Death call to arms is because I was inspired to do so by what you're about to hear. This may be the single most relevant and inspirational discussion I have yet heard anywhere pertaining to the freedom of the individual during a crisis that presents an existential threat to the broader general populace. From an incredibly freedom-inspiring conversation, as heard on March 12th's Right Angle. American Lockdown. I'm Scott Ott, and this is Bill Whittle Now. And Bill, there is a, there's a growing consensus in the scientific community that we are on the same track in the United States of America as China and as Italy was, but we're running about 50 days behind China and about 11 and a half days behind Italy when it comes to dealing with the COVID-19 novel coronavirus. Um, because of that, um, there are some scientists who are saying that within a few weeks, we're going to be in a situation where the rest of the country is going to have to start doing what they've done in New Rochelle, uh, which is a suburb of New York City, um, and have essentially banned large group gatherings and have put in place other kinds of restrictions and uh, actually brought in the National Guard to help clean things up and to prevent the disease from spreading. Um, What do you think is the appropriate conservative response to the prospect of your town or your county or or even your whole state being in in effect a, a quarantine? I think I'm a little more worried about that than I am of the coronavirus. I do. Uh, what I would expect would happen, what I would like to have happen, and what I think will happen, that individual American people as groups or as individuals, as affiliations, whatever, will begin to do this on their own. What I think is more dangerous than the coronavirus is having federal troops driving through the streets of America with M4s, enforcing the breakup of large groups of people because of the uh, COVID-19 virus. I can envision a a scenario where that would be necessary, but this doesn't seem to be that scenario. There's no question that the worst of it is coming for the United States that we are, as you say, probably 50 days behind China. This is a, a separate concern, but I think the idea of a government deciding arbitrarily to basically revoke our First Amendment freedom to gather peacefully is a far bigger danger than uh, than this virus will ever be. Uh, in the last week, I've received emails from my own employer, which is a retail uh, store, my son's employer, a different retail store, as well as a local church that we attend. Um, so they're they're all voluntarily taking these precautions. Do you think because of the nature of the United States, it's just different and that's how we'll approach it? I think it's different for two reasons. Number one, the entire structure of the government and the entire structure of the national character has been predicated on the idea that this is a device for resisting tyranny under any form. And emergencies are where tyrannies usually take the most advantage of their people. And if there's no emergency handy, then we'll create one. Maybe we'll set fire to the Reichstag or whatever else we need to do in order to pass emergency measures, which people will then use to obey laws that they would not have otherwise obeyed. And in the case of the First Amendment, we're not only just talking about laws, we're talking about natural rights, innate rights that are innate to human beings that the government did not grant us in the first place and has no business taking away from us. From a philosophical, moral, and personal point of view, 
as well as a political point of view. If 10,000 Americans want to get together on a square and they've been advised that this is not good for their health, then they get together on the square. And if, and if they want to just go around town looking doorknobs, then that's their business. Uh, but the government this, would say, no, it's not, because you've invaded the commons. You've, you've invaded the space that could affect other people. We haven't invaded the commons. The commons belong to all of us. We haven't invaded the commons. But you're not the all commons of us. Are you 10,000 people do not constitute all of us. No, that's true, but the commons belong to the commons. And to say that I've invaded the commons is to say that I've invaded some place that I already have access to. It is it is the commons. You're you're talking about keeping me out of the commons. That's what you're talking about. Now, the reason I said that Americans are different about this is because I think that is more important than whatever health consequences would flow from the coronavirus. I think the ability of a government to to simply arbitrarily say no at certainly at this level of risk, if we were seeing bodies stack like cordwood, you could conceivably make the case that this was a, 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 an enormous national emergency. But even then, I'd be I would have some serious, serious questions about it. But in this case, absolutely not. Certainly, every indication I've seen in American culture, I don't think there's any exceptions that I'm aware of, has been to be erring on the side of caution voluntarily. And that is what a free people should be doing. This is a core issue. It really is. If you believe that it's okay for state federal or local officials to arbitrarily decide to revoke the First Amendment for an undisclosed period of time, then you have to ask yourself, why am I allowing this local city council or this one politician who's susceptible to two phone calls from nutty people, why am I allowing this person to make this decision? They don't have a right to make this decision. If you agree that your right to assembly can be abrogated by a local government at its whim, then you also agree that a local government can abrogate your Second Amendment rights at its whim, and this is not something I particularly want to do. You do not have the ability to rescind the First Amendment on the basis of what three council members have decided to do based on a number of people calling them and, and, and giving them an earful. If you, if you really want to go down that road of government, then you don't have government anymore. You don't have a republic. You don't have principles. You don't have laws. You don't have a constitution. This is a great test of our system. It is one thing for a, for a city government to say, this procedures are really critically important for public health. And, and we really strongly recommend that you abide by these procedures. And if a private company wants to say, we're closing our offices until this, until this thing is done, that's the business of the private company. And I'm fine with all of this. But for, for any government to come in and say, no, we've decided that large groups of people are not allowed to gather during this crisis, then the questions that come up are who decided, how long, and what is the level of crisis and who decides that? And once you open that door, there, then the definition is as arbitrary as anything else. One of the things about understanding how life works and weighing risk and reward is to not only see what happens, but to see what doesn't happen. This is a really, really important mental ability to develop. If we go down plan A, what would have happened if we gone down plan B? 
if we decide that this virus is worth the destruction of our constitutional First Amendment freedom to gather, that we have made a grave mistake because they have not got the right, Scott. The government, state, local, federal, I don't care, does not have the right to tell me that I cannot freely associate, peaceably gather with my fellow citizens in the United States of America. They do not have the legal authority to do that. They don't. But if you open the door to that kind of arbitrary decision, the game is over. We have the inborn natural law right to assemble, to say what's on our mind, to do all of these things. And if those things end up costing us our health or our lives, well, those are the consequences of our free actions. And since we've been advised by medical authorities, civil authorities, and so on, we should be fully willing to accept the responsibility of those actions, which may mean the death of everybody of you and your family. I'll tell you what, Scott, it's pretty simple, really. If you really want to know, I'll boil it down for you right now. The only reason I would get into a crowd of 10,000 people right now would because it would be because the government said I am legally not allowed to do it. I think that's about the only thing right at this particular moment that would motivate me enough to go ahead and do something like that that is a public health risk. If the government actually said you are forbidden to gather on the streets and more, anything more than a group of 10 or five, as if that mattered, by the way, what's the number? Right? If, what's the number? Is it 100 people? Is it 50? Is it 10? If, if it's 10 people, if, if anything, 10 people or more is not allowed, then are you telling me that as long as we've got nine people, we're all safe? Is that what you're telling me? It's a, this is why this is a, a ridiculous argument and why this principle stands. So I think this country is going to acquit itself well. I think the government has acquitted itself very well. But if this town has decided to deprive its citizens of its First Amendment rights within a one mile square radius, a one mile radius or a one mile square block, whatever the case may be, then they've already decided that they can deprive them of whatever rights they want to at whatever radius they happen to appoint. And this needs to be fought tooth and nail. And it needs to be elucidated. It needs to be clear. We need to be clear why we're having this argument. I need to be clear, and I hope I'm being clear about why I would go out and join a group of 10,000 people. And even if I knew every one of them was already infected with the, with COVID-19, if there was 10,000 people outside, every one of them with the virus who were there in open defiance of a government that told them that they couldn't do it, then I would join that group of 10,000 people and I'd suffer the consequences. And I think that would be a a, a very very well-informed, worthy, noble, and appropriate response to the greater threat than this virus. Well, there you have it. Give me liberty or give me death. And it looks like our Canadian politicians are choosing to give us death. Consider these unconscionable moves taken by various Canadian politicians and governments. Last week, the province of Saskatchewan made it illegal to not self-isolate if anyone had been outside the province and had just returned. And on what evidence? Get this. Six new cases, bringing the total to 26. 24 of the 26 people are self-isolating at home. Two were admitted to hospital for medical reasons, quote-unquote, not related to respiratory illness. Then they list the new cases individually. And they're just cases where the COVID-19 virus is present, not cases of severe illness or health. You know, like a person in their 20s who was tested in Regina after returning from the United States, a person in their 50s who was tested in Regina after returning from Jordan, etc., etc. 
Of the province's 26 cases, 8 are confirmed and 18 are presumptive positive. And then they ordered mandatory self-isolation for anyone who has traveled internationally or has come into contact with someone with COVID-19. Saskatchewan Premier Scott Moe said mandatory self-isolation is now a law. Anyone not following the directive could be arrested. Penalties could include a $2,000 fine for failing to self-isolate for 14 days upon returning to Saskatchewan. Unbelievable. But simply being tested positive for the virus is not a cause for panic, nor a reason to fear severe illness or death for the incredible vast majority of people. We are nowhere near any justifiable or rational cause for declaring emergencies, and every individual is always in control of protecting themselves against any health care threat. Here in Ontario on Monday, Ontario Premier Doug Ford had issued an order as, quote, a closure of all non-essential workplaces in the province of Ontario. And here are four tweets from Freedom Party of Ontario leader Paul McKeever on the subject. Number one, Ontario Premier takes it upon himself to order the closure of all non-essential workplaces. Non-essential to whom? I can't think of anyone less essential to me than the Premier. Number two, I'll say this before he and Justin Trudeau eliminate free speech as an emergency measure. Ford Nation appears prepared to end almost all business and activity and job for 14 days, which means probably longer. No government should have that power. Number three, totalitarianism, the violation of your life, liberty, and property, kills and has killed more people than any virus ever has. Hashtag lockdown now is an unwise demand. And number four, to the man with a hammer, every problem is a nail. Doug Ford can't see the forest for the trees. He's clearly taking his advice from physicians and disease experts who are focused myopically on saving lives, not noticing or caring about the deaths of livelihoods, end quote. And this is another way of saying what I said last week when I pointed out all that government can do and does do best is spend taxpayer dollars and use the force of law to restrict and prohibit That is the only form of response that government is capable of. Everything else is superficial. The politicians are the hammer, the citizens are the nails, and they're making sure that we all get hammered, instead of just the very few unlucky enough to have contracted COVID-19 who could be dealt with in a more rational way. Then there's this one. Liberal bill on coronavirus would give feds power to spend and tax without parliamentary approval, reports Global News on March 23rd. Unbelievable. In response to the coronavirus pandemic, the federal liberals are poised to table a bill granting them sweeping new powers to spend money and raise taxes without having to get the approval of parliament. I I can't believe what I'm reading. The legislation grants Finance Minister Bill Morneau extraordinary new powers to spend, borrow, and tax without having to get the approval of opposition MPs until December 2021. What? Enough is enough, Trudeau warns Canadians flouting coronavirus social distancing. In what cases do they cite? They've got 1,500 cases across Canada, 25 deaths, and 112 recovered. Meaningless, absolutely meaningless statistics. Then there's a reality of the situation. This is from the London Free Press, letters to the editor, March 21st, by Elizabeth G. And I quote, Throwing money at the problem is what governments are best at, but it's our money, not theirs. This is time for common sense. 
I take care of two people who are frail. I had to go to five stores and I still didn't get what I needed. That's five times the risk of exposure, five times others' exposure to me. Now our borders with the U.S. is closing. That will make supplies worse. Suppliers, our leaders, get your acts together, end quote. And this one from the same day's paper, written by Grace, Anna, Teresa, and Paula C. Quote, My sisters and I have spent several hours daily with my mother since she entered one of the long-term care facilities in London three years ago. Recently, I was told I cannot visit unless my mom becomes palliative. I know nursing homes want to protect their residents, but the way it is being done eliminates an important element in residents' well-being, family care. Nursing homes are frequently understaffed, and this is likely to increase as schools and daycares are closed, requiring some staff to stay home to look after their children. I wonder, will there be unintended health costs because of the drastic COVID-19 measures that are being taken? Is it possible my mother and other people in long-term care may experience adverse health effects by not having the extra care family members provide? Having family with her daily has made a huge difference to my mother's life. She would probably not be alive today without it. We just want to be able to feed her and tuck her in at night and ensure she does not become a casualty of the COVID-19 visitor restrictions. End quote. We've only been in lockdown for a little over a week now, and the reality of how it affects everyone's life is only now beginning to sink in. So expect the conversation to change drastically over the coming days and weeks ahead, as the issue once again turns political, which is what it's always been, again becomes polarized between the right and the left, and once again our attention will turn to the source of the COVID-19 problem and of so many other problems around the world, China. Here again on this side of our upcoming bumper is Michael Osterholm in conversation with Joe Rogan, while on the return side, a commentary from the March 20th edition of China Uncensored. Would you do me a favor? I, you're going to really be like this. Okay, yeah. open up, up to chapter 13, okay? Okay, read the... SARS and MERS, a harbinger of things to come. But look at the quote underneath it. Rudyard Kipling. And the dawn comes up like thunder water. China crossed the bay. China. China. We said, did you th- did you put that in there because you really thought that a lot of this stuff was going to come out of China? Or was exactly, that just because it's a great exactly. quote? No, it's a, this is exactly what we're talking about. Why do you, why China? Because they have this incredibly large population, two billion. They've got this food supply that is largely wildlife that comes into these markets where there's this incredible contact between people and these animals, and the crowded nature of that society. I mean. I think one of the things that surprises people when they go to China, 15 million population cities are common over there. I mean, we think of the United States, we think of L.A. and New York, and that's big, okay? Over there, I mean, in Wuhan, a city of 15 million, the entire metropolitan area is 60 million. And so you have people crowded so closely together that if you add in the bugs coming from these animals and then the potential for this kind of of contact where it spreads quickly... China has been a, 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 you know, a bacterial and viral soup vessel for a long time. Yeah. So these wet, they call them wet markets? Yep, is that what wet markets, them? yep. So that's what it is, a lot of it is wildlife? Oh, it's incredible. You know, you know I've hunted my life, you know, I've always, I, I love to fly fish, I, I, mean, I love the outdoors, okay? I could never have imagined the animals, you know, I've spent time in these markets. 
Uh, I remember one day uh, spending a, a day in the Bangkok, Tang, Thailand market, and it was about a mile by a mile and a half wild big, I mean, in these tight aisles. Every animal imaginable to humans, and I swear to God there were some out of the movies, I think, that were in there. And they're all just right on top of each other. And I actually have a picture that I show in some of my lectures. There was a situation where there was all these chickens in a cage, I don't know, 15 or 20 of them, okay, in a big wire cage, and it sat on top of a wire cage full of ferrets. And ferrets are actually an animal model from flu standpoint that they do really well in getting infected with flu viruses. If you wanted to create the perfect experiment that no, no university you know, research group would let you do is you'd put birds and ferrets like that together. And oh, that's Jesus. just common. That's just common. That's common. And so birds and ferrets together, the, uh, it's something that's infecting the birds could jump to the ferrets or and vice versa. Ferrets could breathe it out and we could get infected. Oh, Christ. And so these markets, and, and the, I, I don't know what's going to happen here, but for the first time we really saw the Chinese, after this outbreak in Wuhan, really start to put down some markers on what they're going to do to supervise these markets. I mean, they still have to eat, but I think this is a dangerous practice where we see it. But, you know, it happens. In, look at Africa with Ebola. Right. You know, bushmeat is still very important, and there's so much of the world that that's their primary food supply. And when they say bushmeat, it's basically everything. Everything from bats. We think bat was the uh, the primary source of this outbreak in West Africa was uh, a human bat that was consumed. They eat them all the time. Do they really? Yeah, yeah. So you know, and some of them are pretty big bats. You know, they're they're literally three feet wingspans. They're they're big, and so. Um, you know, that's one of the challenges we have with, with China. We know that this is going to happen. It's going to occur. We think of the flu viruses the same way. And uh, that's why we need doing better flu vaccines. You know, this could just as easily be flu, a flu pandemic, the same thing, like 1918. This is China Uncensored. I'm Chris Chappell. The coronavirus, is it a biological weapon? For a long time, there have been conspiracy theories that the coronavirus that spread from Wuhan, China, was a biological weapon. That's even a conspiracy theory the Chinese Communist Party has pushed. The Chinese Foreign Ministry spokesman tweeted the U.S. Army brought the coronavirus to Wuhan. Keep in mind, he's not just any old crackpot conspiracist. He's the Foreign Ministry spokesman for a country. But we'll never know for sure if the coronavirus was a biological weapon, right? Well, proof has just come out that it is a biological weapon, just not the kind of biological weapon you were thinking of. See, most of the United States medical supplies and generic drugs are made in China. Great choice, by the way. And now, Communist Party mouthpiece Xinhua is saying they can impose pharmaceutical export controls to, quote, throw America into the mighty sea of the coronavirus. When the Communist Party threatens to attack America by withholding critical medical supplies needed to stop a deadly virus outbreak, that is a biological weapon. If only America had been willing to do the Chinese Communist Party's bidding, this would have never happened. Speaking of not doing the Communist Party's bidding, President Donald Trump. He loves to call it the Chinese virus. And the Communist Party hates that. 
Recently, some U.S. politicians have linked the novel coronavirus to China. This is a smear of China. We are very angry and strongly oppose it. And for more on the Chinese front, be sure to check out Just Right's YouTube channel, where Robert Vaughn and Salim Mansour earlier this week have made available two discussions on that very topic, one entitled China's Crimes Against Humanity and the other entitled Contagion, China's New Weapon for Economic Dominance. Now here's a prediction for you, and I avoid predictions like the plague if you'll pardon the comparison. I predict that we will see this whole COVID-19 conversation change dramatically over the coming weeks ahead. The proper cure for the crisis is individual freedom and responsibility. The cure that is worse than the disease is what our politicians are doing to us now. They're trying to offer us a form of collective security with no accountability or responsibility on their part. Frankly, I'm beginning to think our politicians should be held accountable for the destruction and damage they are doing and plan to do to the lives of everyone everywhere. How can we do that best? Sue them? Lock them up? Voting them out of power seems to be a fading option, especially as they give themselves unaccountable dictatorial powers. And always remember that the reason governments and municipalities across the country are declaring emergencies, whether for climate change or for COVID-19, is to permit them to violate our rights. And that should be a criminal offense. Not declaring an emergency per se, but violating our rights. Declare all the emergencies you like, but arm us with valid information. Don't point guns at us. Thankfully, Donald Trump is beginning to reflect this same viewpoint and has already expressed severe doubts about the statistical analysis of the COVID-19 threat. He's already speaking in terms of the cure being worse than the disease. Now, it's clear that our politicians are making decisions based on predictions, not on any reliable or objective or established evidence. And as the current evidence appears to be growing, the rate of pandemic deaths seems to be dropping. Yes, various experts like Michael Osterholm and others are warning that we're still at the very early stage of a curve, and they may well be correct. But that changes nothing when it comes to the most important ingredient any society needs in order to preserve life, individual freedom. Making decisions on future predictions based on a precautionary principle can be as deadly as any metaphysical threat to life itself. So we should be taking precautions against doing that. This is the same kind of thinking they've used to declare climate change an emergency. You know, they say, oh, some 12 or maybe 100 years from now, the weather will get warmer or cooler. Therefore, we think we can tell you how to run your life today. Really? That very kind of thinking is a disease that needs to be eradicated. And as I said on the show last week, we live in an age of utter irrationality where perfectly normal and natural events are being seen as something to fear and declare emergencies about. And right now, the only emergency to which I have to respond immediately is the perfectly normal and natural event of our time running out for this week's show. So, to address that particular emergency, be sure to join us again next week when we will continue our journey in the right direction. And until then, be right, stay right, do right, act right, think right. And be right back here. We'll see you then. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be alright. 
When you're quite finished, chaps, we've got a bit of a problem with the cargo bay doors. What sort of problem? They won't open. Rimmer's put in an override. Welcome home, gentlemen. If you'd like to proceed to the aft, you'll find the landing lights on in Bay 47. Bay 47? That's quarantine! Spot on. Well, sir, I've screened us all. We're clean. Well, much as I trust a viral screening conducted by an automated toilet attendant, <laughs> I really must draw your attention to Space Corps Directive 595. <laughs> crying out loud! I have no intention of contracting the hologrammatic equivalent of foaming dog fever. So, gentlemen, if you'd all like to proceed to quarantine room 152, where you'll be spending the next three months. 